Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray for jo- with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began, began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to glory and praise of God. Got a little PowerPoint as well to accompany what I'm saying. I don't know if any of you have had the shock of hearing that someone that you know is in prison. Might have been a friend or a family member or something like that. If you've ever heard news like that, it kind of rings in your ears. Wow, really? That happened to me a few years ago. A guy named Max, not his real name, but he studied with me at Bible college all those years back. He kind of mature Christian, squeaky clean guy, not the sort of guy you'd think would end up in prison. How did he end up in prison? <laughs> well, he had a couple of so-called friends who he wanted to do a favour for. They said, can you help us shift furniture? Uh, and so he provided his car, his van, to be able to do that. As it turned out, they were actually robbing that place. The neighbour got suspicious, took down the number plate, rang the police, All of them got done for break and enter and stealing. And so he ended up in prison. He was not guilty, of course, and he was finally set free. But um, difficult time for him. He certainly was in despair for a while, thinking, why me? Why is this happening to me, God? And the Philippians are actually also in a period of suffering. They're wondering why they, as God's people, are suffering as they are. They're also looking at Paul, who was the one who founded their church, who started their church with Silas, and they're thinking, why is he in prison? He's, after all, the great world evangelist. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. What sort of good purpose could there be in the apostle Paul sitting in prison day after day, month after month. And so the Philippians are feeling a little bit shell-shocked. Some of them are starting to lose their focus on Christ. And some of them have kind of lost their commitment to love one another as well. So although there's a lot to like in the church here, the first church in Europe, a church that had greatly supported Paul over the years, there's also a few cracks that are starting to show. And Paul finds out about it, and so he writes a letter which is all about partnership and the joy in partnership that he has with the Philippians. 
Now, you probably would agree with me that joy is a strange thing to have while in prison, don't you think? Even a modern-day prison, it might be difficult to have joy, at least as the world's accustomed to having joy. But think about an ancient prison and how much worse that is. Paul had some added difficulties apart from that as well because the letter tells us he's in chains. So he's not only in prison behind bars, but he's also chained to a guard 24-7. Not an easy or comfortable thing. The other thing is he's in an extremely vulnerable situation because in those days, if the state didn't provide for you, uh, then you're on your own. And the state at this time isn't providing for Paul. And so he's having to rely on family and friends to be able to provide for his basic necessities. Uh, so he's starving without help uh, unless people are coming to his aid. So he's in an extremely difficult situation. We're not finding the PowerPoint? Okay, great, excellent. So let me go to my first point, which is all about joy. So you noticed I talked about joy and partnership. So the first thing to talk about is joy. And what kind of joy, joy is Paul talking about? It can't be talking about joy in the normal sense. So two types of joy we can identify and that are even acknowledged in the scriptures themselves. The first major point um, here being joy, chapter 4, verse 4 and 1, verse 4, is where we find Paul talking about a joy that he can have always, regardless of circumstances, if you like. Um, but there's a general joy that is dependent on circumstances, that is dependent on the good things of creation, and that everybody has access to, to a lesser or greater degree. A general joy which goes something like this, and this is found in Acts 14, 17, just a little bit of a context there. Paul is talking to a group of people who don't know God in Lystra, and he's saying, well, in some ways, this God has revealed himself to you through the good things of creation. But anyway, let's read. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. So this is the kind of joy that comes as we enjoy the good things of creation, as we have rain and harvests and full bellies and things like that. Everyone can be happy when those things are happening. And yet, this type of joy that Paul is talking about, for instance, in 1.4 and chapter 4, verse 4, is specific. It's reserved for believers. And it's got to do with rejoicing in what you believe, the content of what you believe. So, for instance, uh, if we look at chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Again, remarkable, he's writing from prison to people who are suffering. So he always prays with joy for them. Joy is a big theme in the letter. You might have read Philippians once or twice before and see the amount of times that joy comes up, either as joy or rejoice, about 16 times. And chapter 4, verse 4 gives kind of a summary to Paul's perspective on joy in the letter. And he says this, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. First thing to take in here, it's not a feeling. It's a command. Sure, there might be feelings accompany 
joy lots of the time, but it's actually a command. You can't command a feeling. Rejoice in the Lord. Take joy in the Lord. In other words, make the center of your joy, the center of your happiness, the Lord and not other things. That's the only way you can rejoice in the Lord always, is if the Lord himself becomes at the center of your joy. Human beings naturally want to be happy, don't they? And they naturally look to one thing as the key to their happiness. And what Paul is saying is, make that the Lord and not other things. So it's not a feeling, because you can't command a feeling. So if I say, for instance, to my wife, be happy, probably the opposite will happen. She won't be happy. (laughs) So it's not a feeling. And yet, if we have the right mindset, then then feelings will often accompany that. So the believer has this unique mindset and privilege of always having things that they can find joy in, in the Lord. So in Philippians, that's all about who God is, uh, Christ and what he has done for us, the gospel and the fruit of the gospel that's happening in their church and around the world, and also opportunities to serve the Lord, things like that. That's how you rejoice in the Lord, is to concentrate on those things and to have that mindset of being happy in those things that are happening. And as we rejoice in the Lord, as we centre our focus in the Lord, as we delight in the Lord, we'll find that our mood lifts and we'll find that we're actually different people as we do that. The Holy Spirit, of course, is there to help us in order to rejoice in the Lord. So we're not alone in this. God himself in believers has planted himself so that we have uh, the Holy Spirit whose fruit is joy inside of us. So just to recap, there's two types of joy. There's a general joy, which comes through good circumstances. So it's completely dependent on good circumstances. And then there's a special joy, which is reserved for believers. Uh, And it's based in that sure and unchanging foundation of the Lord himself. So just moving on to the next slide. We're already there. Thank you. Paul is the great example of this in practice. He's not just speaking from some ivory tower, some comfortable life, and saying, have joy. But he's actually living it. And he's living it in the worst of circumstances. And so the logic is, if I can have joy where I am, you can have joy where you are. If I can have joy in these difficult circumstances, you can too. You see what I mean? It's a, it's a joy that's independent of circumstances because it's based on the Lord himself. But imagine you're the Apostle Paul and you really just want to get out there. You're passionate about sharing the gospel in the nations and you're passionate about your missionary journeys and you're sitting in prison. It'd be pretty easy to mope, wouldn't it? It'd be pretty easy to be thinking, God, what are you doing? And yet, what does he do? He rejoices in the Lord where he is. And a particular way he does that is rejoice in the opportunities he has to serve the Lord where he is. So if you look at 12 to 18, he gives a little report about what's been happening in prison while he's been in prison. He hasn't just been sitting there idle or complaining. Let's have a look, verses 12 to 18. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. 
The latter do so uh, out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. You see what he's doing? He's turned what should have been a loss for the gospel into a win for the gospel. He's thinking, I can't be on the mission field, inverted commas, so I'm going to make the mission field the prison. And so he's been talking to the palace guard about the gospel, about the fact he's in chains for Christ and what that means. And some of them are starting to believe in the Lord. Imagine, though, if you didn't really want to hear as a guard chained to the Apostle Paul. Imagine that. You would just be hearing it constantly. <laughs> a bit like a salesperson you can't get away from. You know, just constant. But that's Paul for you in prison. He's changed what could have been a loss into a win because of his joyful perspective. You might be going through a difficult time, and I don't want to minimise the difficult time you might be going through. But think of the ways that you can have joy in the Lord where you're at and the kind of opportunities that God is opening up for you in those circumstances. So I was able to preach a few weeks back a similar type of sermon um, in the country, New South Wales country, in Orange, uh, where there's a drought happening. It's actually a lot worse in other places in country New South Wales, but some of the farmers are really, really suffering there too. And one of the farmers' wives came up to me afterwards and said, that was such a good thing to be reminded about, to rejoice in the Lord today, because I have a tendency to be really negative about what's happening with the drought. We've been praying for so long. But God really showed me how there's all these opportunities to serve the Lord in the drought that I hadn't even thought of and I'm going to do now. Because while people you know, are suffering in the drought, there's all sorts of opportunities to proclaim Jesus and the hope that we have and to be lights in the world. So, you know, just an example of the way that you can rejoice in the Lord even in the worst of circumstances. Let's move on to the next point, though. Where are we up to? We're talking about Paul and his relationship with the church in Philippi. He's got a relationship of partnership, which we'll draw out in a little bit. Uh, but he takes joy in his partnership in the Lord. Uh, so we're going to learn a bit about this wonderful idea of partnership, which is really God's plan, God's commitment to reach the nations through the way that Christians partner together in the Lord. It's God's plan. He's committed to it and he calls us into it. So let's work out why why uh, Paul has such joy in partnership and why it's so good. Now the first thing to say here is it's a significant partnership in verse 5. He says, just going from verse 4, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. It was a significant partnership right from day one. Very interesting way that Paul looks back on his time as church planting. He doesn't talk here about individual conversions, does he? He talks about partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, the time of his writing. So he's looking back and he sees it from the perspective of, wow, a church was formed which has been in partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So the first day where Paul and Sinus turned up and they started preaching the gospel 
was the day in which partnership in the gospel arrived at Philippi and in which a church was being formed where the influence of the gospel could hit not only Philippi but go further afield as well. Interesting perspective, isn't it? Sometimes we don't always think about ministry in that way. If you like, there was a gospel startup, a little gospel startup that went global. Uh, so we read in Acts 16 the story, don't we, of people like Lydia, the first convert in Europe, a Turkish immigrant businesswoman who converted, uh, then the slave girl who was uh, enslaved to a demon as well and predicted the future. She had the demon cast out. Then you had that Roman jailer who converted after a miraculous earthquake. Interesting way that God started a little nucleus, a little gospel startup, and the way that they started working together for the good of the gospel, even back there. And what happened, as we can see in Philippians 4, you might be able to read a bit later, is the Philippians didn't stop there. When Paul left, he had to leave because of persecution, but they continued to support Paul. They were the only church to do that for a while because they realised what Paul is doing is more significant than our community and so we want to partner with him and so they supported him with prayer and practical support. Now that Paul's in prison, they haven't abandoned him either and they're continuing to support uh, in various ways. One of the ways they did that was to send one of their own, Epaphroditus. So he's one of the Philippian church and he goes right from... Philippi, which is in Macedonia, all the way to probably Rome, where Paul probably is in prison. It's about a thousand kilometres, back in the days before low-cost flights, back in the days before cars and so forth. So significant journey. And he goes there to bless and care for Paul, and he brings a significant gift from the church to support Paul while he's in prison. And so what Paul is doing in Philippians is kind of saying a thank you for your partnership sort of letter. He's saying, thank you so much for that gift. But you notice he doesn't really mention the gift in verse, uh, verses um, three to five here at the start. He talks more about the people. So in other words, what's it saying here? The gift is only secondary to the relationship the relationship of working in partnership together for the gospel, that's more important than any monetary gifts I might get as a result. He does actually get to saying thank you specifically for the gift that came through Epaphroditus a bit later. But first and foremost, he wants to say thank you for the joy of sharing in God's work with you all. That's what he's most thankful about. Now this is a significant model for us as well because the model that developed in Philippi is the model that churches use today as we send out missionaries. So there's a missionary who's selected from the church, one of the church. They might be somebody who's homegrown or adopted and they're sent out through prayers, practical support, encouragement. We notice in, in Philippians it's not just a one-way relationship though, is it? It's not just the missionary receives, the missionary receives. The missionary also gives. The missionary also prays. The missionary also encourages by way of Paul and what he's doing with the church. So that's the model for the church today as well. Significant model of sending out workers and supporting them well as they go out. Let's have a look at a second thing to notice here. Paul takes joy in partnership 
And we notice it's partnership in the gospel or for the gospel. In or for, that little word, it could be translated either way, but it indicates purpose, indicates what it's all about. So this partnership relationship has to do with the glorification of God's gospel, making Christ known. Just while we're here, we might as well understand what Paul means by the gospel in Philippians. The gospel in those days was popularly, popularly known as some big news. Okay, it had to be huge news, something like an earthquake or Caesar has had a son who will be the heir of the empire, something of that magnitude, it had to be big. Now for Paul, what he's saying is there's another king, Jesus. Caesar's not the king, Jesus is the king, or Jesus is over him. So that would have been extremely controversial and difficult to say at the time. Because the whole Roman system worked on the basis that Caesar is the only king, he's the only lord, and everyone has to bow down to him. Everyone has to pay homage. Your ultimate allegiance has to be him. So with Paul going around saying that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the king, he's really upsetting the apple cart and explains why he's being put in prison a lot. Now, as we see, as we go through, uh, for instance, uh, that, ch- that passage that we read, chapter 1, verses 12 to 18, we see that interchangeable with saying uh, that you proclaim the gospel is to proclaim Christ. To proclaim the gospel is to proclaim Christ. It's to proclaim this big news that Jesus is the king. So the gospel is all about Jesus. When I was doing university student ministry in Portugal, I was amazed how many people didn't really see the gospel as centered in Christ. <laughs> but more saw it as their testimony or something to do with, uh, with grace in their life or something like that. But not really centering it in Jesus. But what Paul does as he preaches the gospel is he preaches Christ. Christ is the centre of the gospel. He's the king and he's the one that we bow the knee to. So he develops who the Christ is all through the letter. So chapter 2, you can see that the Christ is the one who's crucified but exalted. He dies for human beings but is exalted at the right hand of the Father so that every knee shall bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So in other words, he has a rightful claim on the lives of every single person in this world and among the nations, which is why we do missions, is because Christ has a rightful claim on every life. Last thing to say here just rapidly, as we think about Christ, who this Christ is in the gospel, is that as we come to Christ in faith and trust, we receive a righteousness from him. The gift of righteousness, not a righteousness that comes from law-keeping or being a good person or anything like that. Why is that? Well, from other passages in Scripture, we know that we all deserve to be in trouble with God. What Jesus does is get in trouble for us at the cross, take the condemnation that we deserve, and so can offer the free gift of forgiveness and the gift of righteousness to anyone who comes to him in trust and faith. This is the gospel that Paul's going around preaching. This is the gospel that's getting him into trouble. But notice, he greatly relies on his partnership to keep the gospel going out. Without partnership, he would have been nothing. He would have rotted in prison. But you notice that the partnership works together 
so that the gospel can keep going out through people like Paul and indeed the Philippians as well. If we go to the next slide, we see it a little bit like this. We can see it as a partnership which emphasises the vertical relationship. So what they're doing as the Philippians and Paul are partnering together is to exalt the name of Christ and make the name of Christ known among the nations. So that's one way you can look at it. But go to the next slide. You can also see it as a fellowship which emphasises the sharing aspect of God's work as you work together. So verse 5 focuses on partnership as that word. It translates a Greek word called kononia. But as you look at verses 5 to 8, you see partnership could also easily be translated fellowship because Paul so emphasises that sharing aspect they have as they partner together, the things that they have in common together. Fellowship is not a really well understood word, is it? So often we sort of see it as, you know, cups of tea, church picnics or something like that. Uh, It's not exactly what is meant. It's more the idea that you share life together, the good, the bad, the challenges, the burdens, everything together as you partner in the gospel. It's more along those lines. Let's go to the next slide. As we work together and as we share fellowship, we'll develop really deep and powerful bonds with one another, emotional bonds, which will keep us going in the hard times. So you see here verses 7 and 8. Verse 7, Paul says, I have you, Philippians, in my heart. And verse 8, I long for all of you with the affection of the Lord Jesus. So that sharing is also sharing in the affection that the Lord Jesus has for us. So it's great to be reminded, isn't it, in partnership, especially when you might find someone difficult to work with. This is the person for whom Christ died. It's a great way to kind of remind yourself about the importance of that person and working in partnership together that honours Christ. If you like, it's a kind of a gospel mateship together. Uh, So just as an illustration here, I've got Simpson and his donkey at the Australian War Memorial. Don't know if anyone's seen that. Who was Simpson? Uh, John Kirkpatrick Simpson. He actually fought in um, Gallipoli and he was in the ambulance corps. And so what he would do is take uh, his donkey along and pick up the wounded who were on the beaches who'd been machine gunned or whatever and take them back in order to receive proper medical care. And he did this for three weeks. An incredible act of bravery, which is why he's honoured through this statue. But it's also a statue about mateship. And this is kind of the idea of fellowship, is as we work together in the gospel, at times we'll be like fellow soldiers. At times we'll be wounded in battle and we need to encourage and help each other in the battle. This is the idea and why Paul gives so, so much thanks to the Philippians because they've helped him while he's been a wounded soldier. Uh, Fellowship is a kind of a a loyal gospel mateship. Now, as the Philippians and Paul struggle under intense persecution, some have taken their eyes off Christ. They've lost that laser-like focus on Christ. And some have even turned against one another in the battle. 
So if you've read Philippians before, you'd know about two leading ladies called Euodia and Syntyche, and they've had a falling out. Uh, they're not getting on at all. Difficult times for them. And so part of the reason that Paul is writing is to try and iron out this issue and to get them all on the same page together and to have deep fellowship again with one another. Which brings me to my third point, what Paul prays for his partners, his partner church. And here he puts into words his hope and prayer for the church. He tells his dear partner friends in the Lord what it will take for them to enter into proper, effective unity and partnership into the future. So he's talked about how he always prays for them with joy. Here's the content of his prayer. And I'll just read verse 9 for now, which is key. Verse 9. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So what's he praying for here? Increased love, abounding love. Love that just keeps going and going. Love that would be necessary to heal this rift between Euodia and Syntyche and other things that are going on in the church which show a lack of love. You notice the challenge, though, is not to love anyone in particular. It's to love generally. The overflow of our relationship with Christ and the love of Christ that we receive in him should overflow to all of our relationships in church and to our partners as well, to Paul, but to people in the church. General love, which will then transform the church. You notice the image here? Christ needs to be at the centre. Christ is the head of the church. He dies for the church and the church needs to reflect him. The way they do that is to increase in love and to meet every single challenge that comes their way through love. Now, it's not a love that's merely sentimental, that's merely emotional. Paul has talked about his emotions, but it's more than that, isn't it? So have a look with me. You see, it's, um, it's a love that abounds more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So how do we increase in love? It's as we grow in knowledge and then apply that in love. You can't have one without the other. You can't actually have growing in love without growing in knowledge. If it's merely just kind of emotions or sentimentality, it'll avoid things like truth and what is profitable. And if it's merely knowledge, then people will just get puffed up and proud and judging one another and not forgiving. So you can't have one without the other. And so this is what Paul is praying for his partners, that love would abound as knowledge grows. And what will happen if they take up that challenge prayerfully with God's help? Verses 10 and 11. It's so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So this church, as it grows in love, will bear progressively more and more the imprint of Christ and it will show greater and greater maturity and so be more effective in God's mission in partnership. It will produce things like the right priorities and decision-making. You see there the discern what is best or approve of what is excellent, another way to translate it. There'll be right decision-making in that church. 
The second thing that will happen is that the church will be full of integrity. It'll be pure and blameless. It'll be sincere and blameless. They'll deal with their sin appropriately. They'll discipline sin appropriately. They'll move on and have Christ as their first love. And the last thing just to mention here really briefly is that Paul prayerfully sees a church full of righteous deeds and righteous character. As love has been applied, then slowly but surely the fruit of righteousness will work itself out. So it won't be that just people say they believe in a God who gives the gift of righteousness through his son, but they'll live this out progressively and in an unfolding way. All of this to the praise and glory of the Lord Jesus. So Paul's reflected on his joy in partnership. He's reflected on the challenge to love, hasn't he? And now I want to leave you, as Paul has left us, with this challenge to maximise our joy through maximising gospel partnership. How do you do that? How do you maximise your joy by maximising gospel partnership? Well, I think it's to, as I've said before, centre your joy on partnership in the Lord that reaches the nations with the gospel. So I think some of that is just to sacrifice. You know, instead of placing our hopes for happiness in things like an overseas trip or the latest iPhone or whatever consumer good you can think of, think about how you can maximise joy by committing to greater and greater gospel partnership. Now it might be that you're the one that's meant to go, that you're meant to uproot from where you are, from where you're living and to go to another place and to live for Jesus overseas. That might be what God is is doing in your life. He might be nudging you in that direction, I'm not sure. That's where you need to assess your suitability. But I think all of us should ask why not? Why isn't it me then? Uh, we have a great gospel and we should be passionate about sharing the gospel in the nations. So why wouldn't you want to if you could? Of course, suitability is important. Uh, I think one thing is if you're not involved in Christian ministry and Christian leadership in one sense here in Australia, then you're probably not the person (laughs) because it's Christian ministry and leadership and in a cross-cultural setting, which is even more difficult overseas. Um, But there's various ways that you can serve in missions overseas. You don't necessarily have to be the upfront preacher. You don't necessarily have to be the one who's really good at one-on-one mentoring or whatever. You'd be surprised as you go into the mission field how different different missionaries and their giftings are. But, yeah, first thing, consider the possibility of going. But the second thing is, and can I have the, the image here? We've all seen Fellowship of the Ring, haven't we? Yeah? Uh, unless you've been living under a rock, you haven't seen... Anyone in that category? (laughs) Right, so I don't need to explain the story too much. But Frodo is the one who is elected to carry the ring and to seek to destroy the ring uh, to save Middle-earth. But Samwise is by his side. So the fellowship of the ring comes down to these two guys in the end, supporting and encouraging one another in their effort to destroy the ring. And there's a little memorable moment, I'm not going to quote him exactly, but Samwise says... Uh, you reckon that our grandchildren will tell this story about Frodo and the ring? And Frodo says, ah, but don't forget Sam Wise. Frodo wouldn't have been able to do anything without Sam Wise. 
Interesting, that little moment. But it says a lot about the way that the gospel goes forward as well in fellowship. That is, we might think of the great ones, the great missionaries or evangelists or teachers, people like that, and think the key is, the key to the gospel going to the nations is send people like that. But don't forget people like Sam Wise. The gospel team's behind these people. So Paul wouldn't have been anything without the Philippians. And so many people who we you know, think of as great, we don't actually think about the people behind them. They actually allowed them to do the things that they did. So think about gospel support teams as well, how you can better get behind those who do go. When I think about honour in heaven for those who've served well, we also need to think about those who've served well in gospel teams. So those who've served in terms of prayers and encouragement and generous giving. And I think there'll be just as many stars in heaven for those kind of people as the people who went and maybe did the things that were seen as kind of more upfront and and more significant, inverted commas, for the gospel. So my challenge is maximise your joy by maximising partnership. Let's pray. Thanks, Lord, for this letter that you've given us to the Philippians. A letter which has so much richness, so much to teach us about joy and about joy in partnership. And we pray, Lord, that indeed that would be our joy. That you would teach us about the value of partnership in terms of spreading the gospel. And that you would help us to be able to commit even further. Lord, instead of maybe thinking about minimal commitments, uh, perhaps praying for a missionary here and there or ticking the box in terms of um, giving some money to a missionary, help us to think about how we can maximise what we can do. Uh, Lord, we pray this for your glory and honour. For Jesus' sake, amen.